Chapter Fifteen of the Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter Fifteen. Impeached. Neville Landless had started so early, and walked at so good a pace, that when the church bells began to ring in Cloisterham for morning service, he was eight miles away. As he wanted his breakfast by that time, having set forth on a crust of bread, he stopped at the next roadside tavern to refresh. Visitors in want of breakfast, unless they were horses or cattle, for which class of guests there was preparation enough in the way of water-trough and hay, were so unusual at the sign of the tilted wagon, that it took a long time to get the wagon into the track of tea and toast and bacon. Neville, in the interval, sitting in a sanded parlour, wondering in how long a time after he had gone the sneezy fire of damp faggots would begin to make somebody else warm. Indeed, the tilted wagon, as a cool establishment on the top of a hill, where the ground before the door was puddled with damp hooves and trodden straw, where a scolding landlady slapped a moist baby, with one red sock on and one wanting, in the bar, where the cheese was cast aground upon a shelf in company with a mouldy tablecloth and a green-handled knife in a sort of cast-iron canoe, where the pale-faced bread shed tears of crumb over its shipwreck in another canoe, where the family linen, half-washed and half-dried, led a public life of lying about, where everything to drink was drunk out of mugs, and everything else was suggestive of a rhyme to mugs. The tilted wagon, all these things considered, hardly kept its painted promise of providing good entertainment for man and beast. However, man, in the present case, was not critical, but took what entertainment he could get, and went on again after a longer rest than he needed. He stopped at some quarter of a mile from the house, hesitating whether to pursue the road or to follow a cart-track between two high hedgerows which led across the slope of a breezy heath, and evidently struck into the road again by and by. He decided in favour of this latter track, and pursued it with some toil, the rise being steep and the way worn into deep ruts. He was labouring along, when he became aware of some other pedestrians behind him. As they were coming up at a faster pace than his, he stood aside against one of the high banks to let them pass, but their manner was very curious. Only four of them passed. Other four slackened speed, and loitered as intending to follow him when he should go on. The remainder of the party, half a dozen perhaps, turned, and went back at a great rate. He looked at the four behind him, and he looked at the four before him. They all returned his look. He resumed his way. The four in advance went on, constantly looking back. The four in the rear came closing up. 
When they all ranged out from the narrow track upon the open slope of the heath, and this order was maintained, let him diverge as he would to either side, there was no longer room to doubt that he was beset by these fellows. He stopped, as a last test, and they all stopped. "'Why do you attend upon me in this way?' he asked the whole body. "'Are you a pack of thieves?' "'Don't answer him,' said one of the number. He did not see which. "'Better be quiet.' "'Better be quiet,' repeated Neville. "'Who said so?' Nobody replied. "'It's good advice. Whichever of you sulkers gave it,' he went on angrily, "'I will not submit to be penned in between four men there and four men there. I wish to pass, and I mean to pass, those four in front.' They were all standing still, himself included. "'If eight men, or four men, or two men, set upon one,' he proceeded, growing more enraged, "'the one has no chance but to set his mark upon some of them, "'and by the Lord I'll do it if I am interrupted any farther.' Shouldering his heavy stick and quickening his pace, he shot on to pass the four ahead. The largest and strongest man of the numbers changed swiftly to the side on which he came up, and dexterously closed with him, and went down with him, but not before the heavy stick had descended smartly. "'Let him be,' said this man in a suppressed voice, as they struggled together on the grass. "'Fair play! His is the build of a girl to mine!' "'and he's got a weight strapped to his back besides. "'Let him alone. I'll manage him.' "'After a little rolling about in a close scuffle "'which caused the faces of both to be besmeared with blood, "'the man took his knee from Neville's chest and rose, saying, "'There, now take him arm in arm, any two of you.' "'It was immediately done. "'As to error being a pack of thieves, Mr. Landless,' said the man, as he spat out some blood, and wiped more from his face. "'You know better than that at midday. We wouldn't a touched you if you hadn't forced us. We're going to take you round to the high road anyhow, and you'll find help enough against thieves there if you want it. Wipe his face, somebody. See how it's a-trickling down him.' When his face was cleansed, Neville recognised in the speaker Joe, driver of the Cloistrum Omnibus, whom he had seen but once, and that on the day of his arrival. "'And what I recommend you for the present is, don't talk, Mr. Landless. You'll find a friend waiting for you at the high road, gone ahead by the other way when we split into two parties. And you had much better say nothing, till you come up with him. Bring that stick along, somebody else, and let's be moving." Utterly bewildered, Neville stared around him, and said not a word. Walking between his two conductors, who held his arms in theirs, he went on as in a dream, until they came again into the high road, and into the midst of a little group of people. The men who had turned back were among the group, and its central figures were Mr. Jasper and Mr. Chris Sparkle. Neville's conductors took him up to the minor canon, 
and there released him, as an act of deference to that gentleman. "'What is all this, sir? What is the matter? I feel as if I had lost my senses,' cried Neville, the group closing in around him. "'Where is my nephew?' asked Mr. Jasper wildly. "'Where is your nephew?' repeated Neville. "'Why do you ask me?' "'I ask you,' retorted Jasper, "'because you were the last person in his company, and he is not to be found.' "'Not to be found?' cried Neville, aghast. "'Stay, stay,' said Mr. Crisparkle. "'Permit me, Jasper. Mr. Neville, you are confounded. Collect your thoughts.' It is of great importance that you should collect your thoughts. Attend to me. I will try, sir, but I seem mad. You left Mr. Jasper last night with Edwin Drood? Yes. At what hour? Uh, was it at twelve o'clock? asked Neville, with his hand to his confused head, and appealing to Jasper. Quite right, said Mr. Crisparkle. The hour Mr. Jasper has already named to me. You went down to the river together? Undoubtedly. To see the action of the wind there. What followed? How long did you stay there? About uh, ten minutes. I should say not more. We then walked together to your house, and he took leave of me at the door. Did he say that he was going down to the river again? No. He said that he was going straight back. The bystanders looked at one another and at Mr. Crisparkle, to whom Mr. Jasper, who had been intensely watching Neville, said in a low, distinct, suspicious voice, What are those stains upon his dress? All eyes were turned towards the blood upon his clothes. "'And here are the same stains upon this stick,' said Jasper, taking it from the hand of the man who held it. "'I know the stick to be his, and he carried it last night. What does this mean?' "'In the name of God, say what it means, Neville,' urged Mr. Crisparkle. "'That man and I,' said Neville, pointing out his late adversary, "'had a struggle for the stick just now.' "'And you may see the same marks on him, sir. "'What was I to suppose when I found myself molested by eight people? "'Could I dream of the true reason, when they would give me none at all?' "'They admitted that they had thought it discreet to be silent, "'and that the struggle had taken place. "'And yet the very men who had seen it looked darkly at the smears which the bright cold air had already dried. "'We must return, Neville,' said Mr. Crisparkle. "'Of course you will be glad to come back to clear yourself?' "'Of course, sir.' "'Mr. Landless will walk at my side,' the minor canon continued, looking around him. "'Come, Neville.' They set forth on the walk back and the others, with one exception, straggled after them at various distances. Jasper walked on the other side of Neville, and never quitted that position. He was silent, while Mr. Crisparkle more than once repeated his former questions, and while Neville repeated his former answers. 
also while they both hazarded some explanatory conjectures. He was obstinately silent, because Mr. Crisparkle's manner directly appealed to him to take some part in the discussion, and no appeal would move his fixed face. When they drew near to the city, and it was suggested by the minor canon that they might do well in calling on the mayor at once, he assented with a stern nod, but he spake no word, until they stood in Mr. Sapsey's parlour. Mr. Sapsey, being informed by Mr. Crisparkle of the circumstances under which they desired to make a voluntary statement before him, Mr. Jasper broke silence by declaring that he placed his whole reliance, humanly speaking, on Mr. Sapsey's penetration. There was no conceivable reason why his nephew should have suddenly absconded, unless Mr. Sapsey could suggest one, and then he would defer. There was no intelligible likelihood of his having returned to the river and been accidentally drowned in the dark, unless it should appear likely to Mr. Sapsey, and then again he would defer. He washed his hands as clean as he could of all horrible suspicions, unless it should appear to Mr. Sapsey that some such were inseparable from his last companion before his disappearance, not on good terms with previously, and then once more he would defer. His own state of mind, he being distracted with doubts and labouring under dismal apprehensions, was not to be safely trusted. But Mr. Sapsey's was. Mr. Sapsey expressed his opinion that the case had a dark look. In short, and here his eyes rested full on Neville's countenance, an un-English complexion. Having made this grand point, he wandered into a denser haze and maze of nonsense than even a mare might have been expected to disport himself in, and came out of it with the brilliant discovery that to take the life of a fellow-creature was to take something that didn't belong to you. He wavered whether or no he should at once issue his warrant for the committal of Neville Landless to jail, under circumstances of grave suspicion, and he might have gone so far as to do it, but for the indignant protest of the minor canon, who undertook for the young man's remaining in his own house, and being produced by his own hands, whenever demanded. Mr. Jasper then understood Mr. Sapsey to suggest that the river should be dragged, that its banks should be rigidly examined, that particulars of the disappearance should be sent to all outlying places and to London, and that placards and advertisements should be widely circulated imploring Edwin Drood, if for any unknown reason he had withdrawn himself from his uncle's home and society, to take pity on that loving kinsman's sore bereavement and distress, and somehow inform him that he was yet alive. Mr. Sapsey was perfectly understood, for this was exactly his meaning, though he had said nothing about it, and measures were taken towards all these ends immediately. It would be difficult to determine which was the more oppressed with horror and amazement, Neville Landless or John Jasper. But that Jasper's position forced him to be active, while Neville's forced him to be passive, there would have been nothing to choose between them. Each was bowed down and broken. 
With the earliest light of the next morning, men were at work upon the river, and other men, most of whom volunteered for the service, were examining the banks. All the live-long day the search went on, upon the river with barge and pole and drag and net, upon the muddy and rushy shore with jack-boots, hatchet, spade, rope, dogs, and all imaginable appliances. Even at night the river was specked with lanterns and lurid with fires. Far-off creeks into which the tide washed as it changed had their knots of watchers listening to the lapping of the stream and looking out for any burden it might bear. Remote shingle causeways near the sea and lonely points of which there was a race of water had their unwanted flaring cressets and rough-coated figures when the next day dawned. But... No trace of Edwin Drood revisited the light of the sun. All that day again the search went on, now in barge and boat, and now ashore among the osiers, or trampling amidst mud and stakes and jagged stones in low-lying places, where solitary watermarks and signals of strange shapes showed like spectres. John Jasper worked and toiled, but to no purpose— for still no trace of Edwin Drood revisited the light of the sun. Setting his watches for that night again, so that vigilant eyes should be kept on every change of tide, he went home exhausted, unkempt and disordered, bedaubed with mud that had dried upon him, and with much of his clothing torn to rags, he had but just dropped into his easy-chair when Mr. Grugius stood before him. "'This is strange news,' said Mr. Grugius. "'Strange and fearful news!' Jasper had merely lifted up his heavy eyes to say it, and now dropped them again as he drooped, worn out over one side of his easy chair. Mr. Grugius smoothed his head and face, and stood looking at the fire. "'How is your ward?' asked Jasper, after a time, in a faint, fatigued voice. "'Poor little thing! You may imagine her condition.' "'Have you seen his sister?' inquired Jasper, as before. "'Whose?' The curtness of the counter-question, and the cool, slow manner in which, as he put it, Mr. Grugius moved his eyes from the fire to his companion's face, might at any other time have been exasperating. In his depression and exhaustion, Jasper merely opened his eyes to say— the suspected young man's. "'Do you suspect him?' asked Mr. Grugius. "'I don't know what to think. I cannot make up my mind.' "'Nor I,' said Mr. Grugius. "'But you spoke of him as the suspected young man. I thought you had made up your mind.' "'I have just left Miss Landless.' What is her state? Defiance of all suspicion, and unbounded faith in her brother. Poor thing! However, pursued Mr. Grugius, it is not of her that I came to speak. It is of my ward. I have a communication to make that will surprise you. At least it has surprised me. Jasper, with a groaning sigh, turned wearily in his chair. 
"'Shall I put it off till to-morrow?' said Mr. Grugius. "'Mind, I warn you, that I think it will surprise you.' More attention and concentration came into John Jasper's eyes as they caught sight of Mr. Grugius smoothing his hair again, and again looking at the fire, but now with a compressed and determined mouth. "'What is it?' demanded Jasper, becoming upright in his chair. "'To be sure,' said Mr. Grugius, provokingly slow and internal, as he kept his eyes on the fire, "'I might have known it sooner. She gave me the opening. But I am such an exceedingly angular man that it never occurred to me. I took all for granted.' "'What is it?' demanded Jasper once more. Mr. Grugius, alternately opening and shutting the palms of his hands as he warmed them at the fire, and looking fixedly at him sideways, and never changing either his action or his look in all that followed, went on to reply, "'This young couple, the lost youth and Miss Rosa my ward, though so long betrothed, and so long recognising their betrothal, and so near being married. Mr. Grugius saw a staring white face, and two quivering white lips in the easy chair, and saw two muddy hands gripping its sides. But for the hands, he might have thought he had never seen the face. This young couple came gradually to the discovery, made on both sides pretty equally, I think, that they would be happier and better, both in their present and their future lives, as affectionate friends, or say rather as brother and sister than as husband and wife. Mr. Grugius saw a lead-coloured face in the easy-chair, and on its surface dreadful starting drops or bubbles, as if of steel. This young couple formed at length the healthy resolution of interchanging their discoveries openly, sensibly, and tenderly. They met for that purpose. After some innocent and generous talk, they agreed to dissolve their existing and their intended relations for ever and ever. Mr. Grugius saw a ghastly figure rise, open-mouthed from the easy chair, and lift its outspread hands towards its head. One of this young couple, and that one your nephew, fearful, however, that in the tenderness of your affection for him you would be bitterly disappointed by so wide a departure from his projected life, forbore to tell you the secret for a few days, and left it to be disclosed by me when I should come down to speak to you, and he would be gone. I speak to you, and he is gone. Mr. Grugius saw the ghastly figure throw back its head, clutch its hair with its hands, and turn with a writhing action from him. "'I have now said all I have to say,' 
except that this young couple parted, firmly, though not without tears and sorrow, on the evening when you last saw them together. Mr. Grugius heard a terrible shriek, and saw no ghastly figure, sitting or standing, saw nothing but a heap of torn and miry clothes upon the floor. Not changing his action even then, he opened and shut the palms of his hands as he warmed them, and looked down at it. End of chapter 15 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England, during the winter of 2008